Well, as I said a moment ago, we are on our way to winding down this series on the Apostles' Creed. Right? This, the Apostles' Creed is this ancient statement came within a generation or two of the, after the first disciples. Uh, it, it's a list of beliefs about who God is, about what he has done in our lives. And the creed, what the purpose of the creeds are, the ancient creeds are to provide a boundary for our faith. Right, helping us to understand those essentials of the faith. One of the things that we say here at City Reach is that we want to be a, a, a diverse church in a number of different arenas, and one of those is, is theological diversity. We want to be, you know, have the St. Augustine quote, right? In the essentials, the things that we believe in the Apostles' Creed, we want to have unity. But there's a whole lot of things outside of that, a whole lot of expressions of faith, whether it be baptism or the end times or the miraculous or non-miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Right? In those non-essentials, we want to have liberty and in all things, hold together in love and charity. But the Apostles' Creed, I think, helps provide some of those boundaries of the faith. If you can't affirm the Apostles' Creed, I'm going to say that you might find yourselves on the outside of Christianity. Right? These are the essentials of what it means to, to, to have faith. The bare bones, the skeleton, if you will, of our relationship with God. And as we saw two weeks ago, the final paragraph, the final section begins with an affirmation of the Holy Spirit. He is the person of the Trinity who takes that plan of the Father and the work of the Son, Jesus, on the cross and applies it into our lives. Last week, we saw that first application of the nature of the church, the corporate nature of the church. We affirmed the belief in the Holy Catholic Church, not necessarily, it doesn't mean Roman Catholic, it's not a capital C, it's not a proper title but Catholic, which means universal. Right? That the church consists of all believers across time, through space, who, who put their trust in Christ. Right? I, I talked about how we aren't supposed to join a church just out of convenience, but that we have been called out of our current situation in order to be part of a fellowship. All right? a, a people set apart to honor God and to pursue his purposes on the earth. Last week, we, or this week, we will affirm our belief in the forgiveness of sins. Last month, we looked at Jesus' suffering and death, and I, I talked a little bit about how his death served as a word that I'm going to bring up again here, uh, a propitiation, that's what the scriptures call it, for our sins, an offering, a sacrifice for our sins. And so this week, we'll take a little bit of a closer look into what that means in our lives. <laughs> so what are, excuse me, practice has been together in this series is we've been reciting the creed verbally together. And so the words are going to be on the screen. I'd invite you to join with me in, in affirming this. So friends, what do you believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints. Let's just finish the whole thing off. 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Since the beginning of time, uh, humanity, or near the beginning of time, humanity has recognized that there is a gulf that exists between the perfection of God, the ideal of how we ought to live our lives, and the actual, the way in which we carry ourselves from day to day. And the Bible calls this chasm sin. Now, in the Old Testament, you might see a lot of words that are just translated sin. But in fact, there are sin is nuanced. Not all sin is necessarily the same. And the Old Testament actually has three different words that it uses to describe the separation. Now, the most common of these words is what is usually translated sin. If you see the word sin, chances are it's this word in the scriptures. And and frankly, the interesting thing about this word is it's not a moral term. It doesn't necessarily describe good or bad um, qualities. But it's a word that comes from the the world of archery. This summer, um, or it means to miss the mark. That's what the word actually means. This summer, just to give an example, we're going to be, hopefully, I'm going to be watching the, the 2021 Tokyo Summer Olympics. Summer Olympics are my favorite. And the very first medal to be awarded in those games is the women's 10-meter air rifle. Now, if one of those women are, you know, I don't know really, I've never fired a gun in my life, but I imagine it's something like this, right? Aiming down their sights at the target 10 meters away, pulls the trigger, hits the bullseye, right? That's hitting the mark. But if she misses the target, or even if she hits the target but misses that bullseye, according to the Bible, That is what sin is. It's a failure to meet the standard of of perfection that is set forth by God. In fact, quite often, and if you've been joining with us in reading Leviticus, quite often sin is something that is committed unintentionally. When we think of doing the right, you know, there might be times where we think that we're doing the right thing, that we think we're on the right path, but we're hopelessly lost. Usually in the Bible, sin means an accidental violation of the commands of God. And that's, again, Leviticus. If you look at the sacrificial system there, more often than not, really what it says is if you unintentionally do this, if you accidentally stumble upon a dead body and makes you unclean, it's, it's unintentional violations. But there are two other words in the Old Testament that describe this more intentionality of of sinning, of breaking God's commands. The first is the word transgression. Transgression describes a breaking of trust, like something like breaching a contract would be a consideration of of transgression. Or in the example of the Hebrew people, violating the terms of of the covenant that God set up with them. And then the other word that's used is the word iniquity. You know uh, Isaiah 53, the famous suffering servant passage, right? That our iniquity has been laid on him, or I I misquoted that, but you you get the paraphrase of that, right? The iniquity of us all has been laid on him, right? Iniquity describes um, behavior that is crooked, like we are on an errant pathway and we know it and we don't care. That's more what iniquity is. So whether we err intentionally or unintentionally, the Bible reveals that this is a break in God's law. And what that results in is a severing of our relationship with God. 
The Apostle John wrote in, in one of his letters, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Right? There might be times that you break the law even if you don't mean to. Right? For instance, in our, in our you know, American government, American laws, we have a difference between murder and manslaughter. Murder is lying in wait. It is iniquity. It is, it is that crooked path that someone intentionally walks on. But manslaughter could describe a situation where you're driving your car, you miss a stop sign running through an intersection, striking a pedestrian and killing them. It's not intentional. It wasn't immoral. But there's still culpability that comes with you. Right? It's, it's a failure, even in the unintentionality. It's a failure to meet the measure of God's standard and that there's consequences that come from it. And I'm just kind of trying to lay the foundation of what the Bible calls sin and, and describes that severing of relationship. Because the truth is we all have a, we have a rap sheet of some sort before God. In the words of Psalm 130, verses 3 to 4, the psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But he continues, but, but, with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist recognizes that we are guilty, right? That if God met out justice for each of us in the ways that we deserved, who could stand up to that kind of scrutiny? It would crush us. But he continues acknowledging that there's forgiveness. That God has created a pathway to right our wrong, to cleanse our slate to reconcile the relationship that was severed. And the end goal there is that God would be feared. Now, when the Bible talks about fear, this is one of these misconceptions, because when we read it in our, in our 21st century mind, right, we think like, man, I went and saw that new Saul movie, you know, Spiral, and it was like, right, I was scared. I won't see it because I don't do well with horror movies. But, that, but like, the, the, the type of fear that's described here is not terror. It's not someone is lying in wait in your closet to, to come and, and, and strike you. But it's better translated as reverence. Like, imagine, you know, keeping this legal metaphor going. Imagine you are in a courtroom, you are facing a fine or facing jail time that would be impossible for you to, to pay. You succumb to your fate, you prepare to face jail time, prepare to face justice, but then the judge takes off her robes, walks up to the ledger, and pays it in full out of her own resources. How would you feel? You'd be overcome. You'd be awed. You would have massive respect for this judge who just gave of her own resources to help you out. That is biblical fear. It's a recognition of the majesty of God, seeing him as he truly is powerful, yes, but he is also mighty in his goodness. So how does God display this forgiveness of our wrongdoing? And what I want to look at this morning, just take a little closer look, is, is the Day of Atonement found in Leviticus 16. I, th I really think that Leviticus 16 provides the model for forgiveness that Jesus brought to us. When we understand the Hebrew celebration, it gives us additional wisdom in seeing how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, that he did something that these ceremonial laws could never do. Like I said, today is Leviticus 16, so I'm already reading half of you for it if you're following along on that plan. 
So Leviticus chapter 16, you feel free to open there if you'd like to, or you can just uh, listen to me read. I'm going to just read verses 2 through 10. There's a whole lot. I mean, this is a lengthy passage. Uh, I'm going to just give you the opening context, and then I'll fill in some of the gaps and paraphrase it. Starting at verse 2, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. Now, a, a few chapters earlier, we saw Aaron's sons die because they offered unauthorized fire on the altar. We don't know precisely what that means. Maybe they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing. Uh, but, but there was fear, and this probably is a little closer to that terror. I don't want to mess up. I don't want to do the wrong thing. So God is instructing them instructing Aaron, the high priest, for I will appear in the cloud of the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban, right? Put all the right clothes on. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats, for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. Continuing in verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take these two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So this describes the start of the, the celebration of the Day of Atonement. It's, it's continued to be celebrated by Jewish people as Yom Kippur. It's an annual celebration, always on the tenth day of the seventh month of their calendar. And it was on this day that the high priest was allowed to enter into that most holy place of the tabernacle, that, that back room tucked away by this huge veil. This was the place that contained the Ark of the Covenant, which is described as being the footstool of God, right? The place where God rests his feet while he is enthroned in heaven. While God is all around us, while God was all around them, right? Omnipresent. The temple was a place that it was believed that he was in some way physically more present than all the other places on the earth. And so as the Hebrew people practiced this, because this is where God was, and God has the chance to potentially strike out against you if you enter into his presence in, in an inappropriate way, right? They would tie a rope around the waist of the high priest so that when he would go into the presence of God, if he were to die in there, they had a way they could like pull him back out so that they wouldn't have to go in after him. Now, looking closer at the passage, we see some, from verses 3 through 5 that there are a few animals that are being sacrificed on this day. First, there is a bull. The bull was used to purify Aaron. The blood of this bull was used to cover Aaron's sins. That way, when he entered into the holy presence of God, God's wrath against Aaron's sin, his waywardness would not lash out upon him. But then there are these two goats that were collected from the community. And these goats had two specific, two specific purposes, which were defined by lots, right? Casting lots in the Old Testament was kind of like a, a spiritual way of drawing straws, if you will. And these two goats are very important. The first goat was a sin offering. 
Right? This was representative. The sacrifice was representative of cleansing the sins of the entire nation of Israel. Right? The bull covered Aaron's sins, the high priest, made atonement for him. But this goat symbolically covered the sins of all of Israel. Right? The goat would die instead of the nation of Israel. Now that might fit with what we understand about the crucifixion of Jesus, right? Jesus died so that we might live. But that second goat was considered the scapegoat. It's where we get that language of scapegoat in our modern lexicon. Aaron would take that goat, he would place his hands upon the goat's heads, and he would confess the sins of the people of Israel. Again, symbolically transferring those sins from him as a representative of the people onto that goat. And then that goat would be released live into the wilderness. Now in the passage we read that it belonged to Azazel. No one knows with precision exactly what that meant, what that was referencing. Um, Some rabbinic writings describe that as, um, that figures a demon, but we don't know. And, And I would encourage you not to get caught up in the identity of Azazel, because the importance of the transaction is not who that goat belongs to, but that the goat, now shouldering the sins of Israel, was released into the wilderness. It was let go to flee the Hebrew camp and to take their sins with them. In this celebration, we see two foundational principles which shape our understanding of Jesus Christ on the cross. As the writer of the book of Hebrews has stated, this this day of atonement was purely symbolic. It was a shadow of the greater things that were to come, namely Jesus. The writer continues, Hebrews 10, 3-4 says this, But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why were they doing this if it was impossible for bulls and goats to take away sins? Because they were a shadow. They were meant to, kind of like a map, to point us the way pointing forward to the blood of Jesus Christ, which had the efficacy to actually cleanse sins. So using the Day of Atonement as our, as our example, as our context, Jesus did two things for us. And there are two kind of theological terms that people use to describe it. The first is he was a propitiation for our sins. I use that, I, I open with that. Right? It is the act, propitiation is the act where the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus instead of us. Right? Jesus took the weight of our sins and he paid the penalty that we deserve. God's anger towards sin was satisfied. I shared this when we talked in the Apostles' Creed about the suffering of Jesus. We continue to find ourselves alive and breathing. But the scapegoat was really important too because the second goat symbolically took the sin of the people away from them into the wilderness. This is what scholars call expiation. So you have propitiation, And I don't expect you to remember these things, but propitiation and expiation. It's Jesus removing our sin from us. You could could make the argument that that first goat, that first idea of propitiation, deals with the symptoms. Because of our lawlessness, to use the, the example of John, the first goat is receiving the penalty of those sins. But the second goat removes the problem from us. It takes our sin and it separates it from us. Watchman Nee, who was an early, uh, he, he was a uh, Chinese Christian in the early 1900s. Um, he wrote a book called the, the Natural 
excuse me, not the natural, the normal Christian life. And I think he really nails this concept. In it, he separates our sins, plural, from our sin, singular. Right? He would say our sins, plural, are the collective places where we have mucked things up, the sins that we have committed. But our sin, singular, he says, is our natural inclination, our natural bent away from God. And he puts it this way. He says, and I quote, we must realize that not only have we committed sins, but we are also sin. We may never have committed anything evil, but inwardly we are sin, he says. It does not matter whether an apple tree brings forth apples or not. It is still an apple tree. We receive forgiveness from Jesus Christ for both our sins and our sin." Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? Our sin is taken away from us, and the righteousness of Christ is, is imputed, is the word that they use, is given to us. Jesus didn't only deal with the punishment of sins, but he removed them from our presence. All this goes to say that through the work of Jesus Christ, God has forgiven us. He has issued a pardon. He has taken back those who went against him, those who rebelled against him. Right? We're, we're, we're like shipmates who attempted a mutiny against the captain, and we all failed miserably. But instead of like, you know, most of those pirates movies, you know, like uh, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, instead of making us walk the plank, the captain instead lovingly brings us back on his crew. Right? This forgiveness, which was earned through the suffering of Jesus, was precious and costly. Jesus often described the kingdom of God as a, a great treasure, a buried treasure, or a pearl of great price. Because while it was costly to Jesus, costing his very life, it is freely offered to us. It's not a wage. His forgiveness is not a wage that we earn, but a gift we receive. You and I don't have to do anything. We don't have to work to earn it. We just need to be willing to receive it, to accept it. So where do we go from here? Right, there's a, that was a lot of theological jargon to explain how forgiveness was offered to us, that Jesus died for us, propitiation and expiation. But I think the natural application to that is twofold for us to consider this week. First, how do we see forgiveness in our own lives and second, how do we pass it on to others? If you have accepted Jesus Christ, you are forgiven by God. Right here, right now. God doesn't keep a you know, past record of all those mistakes that you've made. They're gone. One of the characteristics to find, uh, of that, you know, there's that famous chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 which talks about love. Love is patient, love is kind, etc., etc. Near the end it says that one of those characteristics is that love Agape, divine love, keeps no record of wrongs. God doesn't say, hey, Chris, that thing you did 10 years ago, we need to talk about that again. No. It's gone. So I ask you this morning, do you trust in what Christ has done on your behalf, or are you trying to build your own righteousness? When you make a mistake, do you go to God and do you know that he has already forgiven you? Do you experience that forgiveness? 
or something that I know is common from time to time in my life is I grapple with shame. I only begin to experience that forgiveness after I feel like I've suffered or wallowed in my guilt just long enough to show God that I really am sorry. I shared this story before that one of my friends in college, when he would apologize to his dad, he'd say, Dad, I'm sorry. His dad would say, prove it. Too often we carry that attitude with God, that God's waiting for us to prove how sorry we are. Because too often when we fail, we don't experience grace. We don't experience it as a gift, a free gift of God's forgiveness. Instead, we try to meet God halfway. God, I'm really sorry. Let me show you how sorry I am by doing these things that I know you want me to do. But friends, that's not experienced grace. That's trying to build our own righteousness. Saying like, God, I'm only doing these symbols of sorrow so that you will love me again. I need you to love me, so I need to do these things. When we err, when we're wayward, whether unintentionally or sometimes if we, you know, stake out on the wrong path intentionally, the gospel invites us to fully trust in that forgiveness that is given, offered to us by Jesus Christ. Not like, God, you paid 95% of my death, 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 95% of my debt, but I've got to scrounge around to find that other 5%. That loan has been paid, it is free and clear. Now, one addendum to this, last, last month I preached on Sheol, the place where I think Jesus was between his death and his resurrection, and I had a number of people approach me afterwards, I, a handful, enough that it was something that clearly, I clearly missed in the sermon itself. Um, but they asked me, is, is this idea of Sheol, is this the same place as purgatory? It's not. Purgatory is a belief that is most commonly held by the Catholic Church. And what purgatory is, is it's this belief of an intermediary state between earth and heaven. Right? In their view, it's kind of like a rest stop on the way to eternity. Jesus could get you most of the way, but purgatory is there because they believe that maybe you have unconfessed sin that you need to work off. Right? According to this doctrine, there's a greater purification that needs to be done for the souls. That's, that's what uh, the Roman, again, I'm, I, hopefully I'm not building a straw argument here, but that's generally speaking what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about purgatory. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that it's, it's not that Jesus plus something to get God's favor. Again, Jesus gets you most of the way, but you've got to do that little extra work to, to you know, make a, you know, close that gap. It's that Jesus removed all of our sin. Like that scapegoat in Leviticus. It's, it's gone. It's vanished. It's disappeared, never to be seen again. Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so How far is his steadfast love towards those who fear him? God loves us so much more than we can comprehend. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Forgiveness means that it's gone. You don't have to keep dealing with it. Now, there are a lot of you that are here in this room or who are listening online who I think need to hear what I say next. You might believe, you understand cognitively that Jesus forgave you on the cross, but you've got a really hard time forgiving yourself. You agonize over the decisions that you've made and you continue to wallow in guilt and shame for things that you've done. If God has forgiven you, as I just, I think I stated, I made a case for that he has forgiven you fully through Jesus. If he's forgiven you, Why do you have such trouble forgiving yourself? 
Do you put yourself above God? I mean, think about it. The God of the universe who knows you intimately, who loves us with an unquenchable love, knows full well all the crappy stuff we've done. Frankly, he is aware of things that we have done that we might even be oblivious to. We're blissfully ignorant. But God sees us transparently, and he's let us off the hook through Jesus. So why do we continue to put ourselves back on that hook, forcing ourselves to suffer over the pain that we've caused? Are you greater than God? If God has declared you forgiven, then why would you argue with him about that? I mean, I don't think you'd question his authority. I just I want to encourage you to live within the freedom that comes with Christ's forgiveness. We're going to sin. We don't want to sin. That's what Romans 6 teaches. Where Paul says, like, you know, grace is a good thing. Shall I keep sinning so that grace can abound, so that there's more grace? He says, heavens no. You're misunderstanding the question. This isn't a license to sin, but it's a recognition that we're, we're still broken people. We are going to err from time to time. Some of us have caused a lot of pain for ourselves and others in the decisions that we've made. I'm not saying that we should be sociopaths and not care how our decisions affect others. But God has given us a pardon. You should not allow yourselves to, you know, to continue to beat yourself up over the past. I think forgiving ourselves for our boneheaded mistakes can be one of the most difficult things that we wrestle with as it pertains to forgiveness. But I think a close second is actually forgiving others who have wronged us. So this is that second piece. First is thinking about what does it mean to experience God's forgiveness in your own life? Actually living into that, not carrying the weight of all of that. It's been, you've been freed from it. But secondly is forgiving others who have wronged us because the gospel makes it clear that when we experience God's forgiveness in our lives, that should give us motivation. It should give us fuel to look at others who have hurt us and begin that process of extending forgiveness to them as well. There's a whole lot of parables about them. I'm not going to go into that now. But that being said, I want to acknowledge that forgiveness is a process. Right? The theological logic of God forgave me, so I should forgive, forgive others is spot on. It's in there. That's what the Bible teaches. But sometimes the practical outworking of that can be much more difficult. I've seen many places where in an effort to be, you know, like in compliance with right doctrine, church leaders have coerced people to forgive abusers in a way that is not healthy nor beneficial. My goal in bringing this up is not to try to short circuit that process for you, to just rote forgive people, force you to forgive someone because God says you have as a command. But I want to encourage us instead to explore what it might mean for us to let go of some of the anger and the pain for others through forgiveness. When I was in college, I had a, a, a lot of anger for a certain individual in my life. And Dan Nold, who was the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church, and that's, that's where I attended when I was at school, he defined forgiveness like this. And I'll, I'll never forget what he said. He said forgiveness. And I, he said, I quote, Forgiveness is making a conscious decision to choose to live with the consequences of someone else's actions. Forgiveness is making a conscious decision to make the choice to live in light of the consequences of what someone else has done, their actions. Forgiveness is acknowledging that I have pain, 
but I'm not going to allow that pain to dictate how I continue to live my life. But note that forgiveness is not necessarily the same thing as reconciliation. I would argue that forgiveness can be a one-way street. Maybe there's someone in your life who has never and never will apologize to the, for the things that they have done to you, for the pain that they've caused you. You don't, you don't need an apology to forgive them. You probably need that apology for, you know, you need repentance, you need heart change for reconciliation to really be able to reunify your relationship. For forgiveness, you don't need that. You can declare that the ramifications of their decision are no longer going to create your identity in your life. Lewis Smedes used to put it this way. He said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that that prisoner was you. Right? Forgiving is not just letting someone off the hook. It's you not being bound by their decisions anymore. But in that, forgiving is not the same thing as forgetting. Right? If, if someone rear-ends your car, you can say, I forgive you, and, and mean that it's like, that's fine, I'll take care of it, at great cost to yourself. But forgiving doesn't mean that you don't call insurance companies. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that you don't go through the, the proper use of the law to make sure that there is a, a element of justice in the world that we live in today. I think that God would be honored by justice in that way. Forgiving someone doesn't mean you have to go back to what life was before the offense occurred as if nothing had ever happened. Frankly, if you forgive someone, it doesn't mean you're obligated to bring them back into your life especially if they continue to be a toxic personality. Dan Allender put it this way. I really like Dan Allender. He's, he's got some really great books. He says, forgiveness involves a heart that cancels the debt, but does not lend new money until repentance occurs. Forgiveness forgives the debt, but you're not on the hook to keep lending out money. Again, I think he's speaking emotionally here, socially and emotionally. You're not, you're not, on the hook to keep like being a part of that person's life if they're just going to continue to hurt you over and over and over again. That's not necessarily what forgiveness speaks to. Right? The gospel is all about forgiveness, but the gospel is not just about being a doormat in people either. We affirm this morning that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We acknowledge that we have not always walked the manner that we should but that God has granted us forgiveness through Jesus. I want to encourage us this week to rest in that forgiveness. We've seen the model of it in the sacrificial system, how it points forward to Christ's work on the cross. Jesus not only protected us from the wrath of God, but also removed that cancer of our souls so that we could be right in relationship with God again. Own that forgiveness. That's freely offered to you by a loving God. Trust in God's forgiveness. Rest in your personal forgiveness and allow it to chip away at that calloused heart that you might have that opens you up to be able to forgive others as well. When we are healed by the love of God, it enables us to pass that forgiveness on to others who have hurt us as well. Join me together in prayer. Lord, you are a good and loving God. May we recognize your posture towards us.
Not the cosmic cop just waiting for us to screw up, but a loving father. On this day of Father's Day, may we honor you as our father who loves us deeply. Who not only would do anything for us, but has done everything for us by sending your son to suffer and die on a cross so that we could be not only healed of our sins, but that they would be removed from us. That we could be adopted into your family, being co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Lord, help us rest in that forgiveness, not allowing, let, the, let the, that dead part of ourselves stay dead. Not allowing those sins from yesterday or 10 years ago rear their ugly heads. Help us know the finality forgiveness that you have put to death our sin and resurrected us to new life in you. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your actions in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.